This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. On the last episode in the series Fatal Fans, I told you the story of John Hinckley's assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan and how his acquittal using the not guilty by reason of insanity defense led to reforms in the justice system. Winning a trial by pleading insanity would thereafter become very difficult to do, and the use of the insanity defense would become rare in U.S. trials. This got me to thinking about how certain crimes have led to big changes, either in the way we think, behave, or respond to crime. Sometimes they change the way we live our everyday lives. For example, the 9-11 terrorist attacks changed our views about how safe air travel actually is and caused us to add more security measures in airports and on planes. But while this was a major event that made us rethink things, even some crimes that aren't, at first widely known, have become game changers. In this first chapter of the new series, I share a story about a crime that was shocking and made headlines worldwide. Not just because of the crime that took place, although it was horrible, and not even because of who the perpetrator was, but surprisingly, because of who the witnesses to the crime were. This case changed the way we thought about who we were as a society and how we responded to crime. Join me for the first installment in the series, True Crime Game Changers. This is Chapter 1, Kitty Genovese. Catherine Susan Genovese was born on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, to Vincent and Rachel Genovese. She was one of five kids growing up in a traditional Catholic Italian-American family. Her father worked to provide for his large family while Rachel took care of the children and the home. Catherine, called Kitty by her family and friends, attended Prospect Heights High School. She was pretty and petite, standing only five foot one with dark hair, which she preferred to wear short. She was fun and full of energy. Everyone remembers that whenever music would play, Kitty would be the first one dancing and was likely to pull you out to dance with her if you were standing close by. She was voted class cut-up in her high school yearbook. She was always smiling and laughing and generally enjoying life. She graduated high school in 1953. Kitty's parents decided that same year to move out of the city. They cited the reason as the increase in crime in New York. Rachel had witnessed a shooting that year, and Kitty's father said that it was the final straw. They were taking their family and moving to New Canaan, Connecticut. Kitty, the oldest, having just graduated from high school, decided not to move with the family. She liked living in New York and wasn't afraid to stay alone. Her parents were not happy with her decision, but realizing that she was an adult, reluctantly let her stay. Kitty took a couple of office jobs, but the work didn't suit her. She found a job first as a waitress and hostess and then moved on to tend bar in a restaurant. She loved the job because it allowed her to be around people. She was warm and friendly and funny, and the customers loved her. She was also tough for being such a small girl and could cut off a patron who reached their limit of alcohol with no problem. They usually were charmed enough by her not to argue with her decision. She eventually moved up to bar manager and settled in Queens, New York. Kitty was enjoying her life as a single independent woman, but what wasn't well known was that she had actually been married for a short time, only a couple of months in 1959. She'd married a man who was in the army, only identified later as Rocco. It's believed that she wed him to please her parents and was even married in the Catholic Church, but it didn't last. 
Apparently unconsummated, the marriage was annulled soon after. Because the truth was, Kitty was gay. While not openly so, and certainly never reported to her family, her close friends knew. Not only was being a lesbian a sin according to her Catholic upbringing, it was also a crime in New York in 1963, as well as in every other state in the Union except Illinois. Even so, there was a small but thriving gay community in New York. Kitty, who loved to dance, could often be found at one of the dance clubs or bars that catered to gays and lesbians. Places like the Duchess, the Sea Colony Bar, or the Swing Rendezvous Bar were havens where Kitty and her friends could meet to relax and have fun. Sometimes, however, these places would be raided by the police, and some of the patrons might be harassed or even arrested. Kitty was at the Swing Rendezvous on March 13, 1963, when she first met Marianne Zelanko. Marianne, 24 years old, had grown up in New Hampshire in a traditional Polish family. Early in her life, she realized she was different, and she was not shy about her sexual orientation. She knew she didn't fit in and decided at age 16 to move to New York City's Greenwich Village. She felt a freedom and an acceptance there and quickly made it her adopted home. Marianne was the polar opposite of Kitty. She was blonde. Kitty was brunette. Kitty was outgoing and vivacious. Marianne was more quiet, even shy. But they quickly took a liking to one another. Kitty pursued the relationship. Seeking out Marianne a few days later and finding out where she lived, she called her. She invited her out for a drink on St. Patrick's Day. They were inseparable afterwards, and two weeks later, they moved into an apartment together, located on Austin Street in Kew Gardens, Queens. Kew Gardens, a middle-class neighborhood, was the smallest town in the borough of Queens, New York. It was only 56 blocks total and less than an area of one square mile. Kitty and Marianne's apartment was in a two-story, Tudor-style building, located on a tree-lined street with storefronts below and apartments above. On the street level was a bookstore, a dry cleaners, a liquor store, and at the south end of the block was Bailey's Pub. On the corner in front of Bailey's Pub was a police call box. Next door to the apartment building was a Long Island Railroad station and a small parking lot. Kitty would often park her car in this lot when she returned home from her shift at the bar, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning. Across the street from their apartment was a 10-story building, the Mowbray Apartments. A little boy who grew up in the building went on to become an entertainer, changing his name to Rodney Dangerfield. Across the hall from Marianne and Kitty lived Sophia Farrar, her husband Joe, and her two children. Sophia, called Sophie by those close to her, had become friends with Kitty and Marianne. Kitty would stop by often to have a cup of coffee with Sophie and sometimes then drive the Farrar children to school. In Kew Gardens, neighbors helped each other out. Sophie would let herself into Kitty and Marianne's unlocked apartment if she heard the phone ringing and take messages for them while they were out. Kitty loved children and was a natural with them. They loved her back for her fun nature and how she always listened to them, treating them like equals and not like pesky little kids. She'd been very close to her own younger siblings and had a special bond with her little brother William, or Bill. He was only six when he and his big sister Kitty had been separated when the family moved to Connecticut, and now, even though he was 16, he loved it when she came to visit. Bill would spend as much time as he could taking drives with her in her little red Fiat and talking and catching up with each other. Marianne would come to visit Kitty's family with her. The family was polite to Marianne during these visits. Marianne was only introduced to them as Kitty's roommate and friend. It is likely that her parents suspected that Kitty and Marianne were in a relationship, but it was never talked about, with or without Kitty present. 
On March 12, 1964, Kitty was scheduled to work a double shift at the bar she managed, Ev's 11th hour, in Hollis, Queens. Kitty worked both as a barmaid, as she called it, pouring drinks behind the bar, but she also worked as the bar's manager, balancing the books, keeping inventory, and ordering supplies. Working sometimes 12 to 15 hours in a day, she made a good salary. Her take-home pay was around $750 a month, worth about $5,000 in today's dollars. Her dream was to save enough money to open up a small Italian restaurant with her father. She pictured a small romantic place with checked tablecloths and candles on the tables and traditional family dishes on the menu. It would be easy to do with her monthly earnings, that is, if she could stop handing out loans that were really gifts to friends and customers. Kitty loved to help people and was generous to a fault. If she heard someone was in need, she thought nothing of lending them money, money that she never really asked to be returned. Sophie's son Michael said he would sometimes do small favors for her and she would hand him $5, a fortune for a small boy in 1964. She arrived at the bar at 8 p.m. to open up for the day. After setting up the bar, she would serve customers until 6 p.m. At 6, the night bartender would come on and she would spend the rest of the evening with bookkeeping and other management duties. She would finally close up and go home after 2 a.m., But today she took a break at 6 p.m. to have dinner with a regular customer and friend, Jack Timmons. Jack came by Ev's to pick up Kitty and have dinner at his brother's house. They left around 12.30 a.m. It was now Friday the 13th of March and the one-year anniversary of when Kitty and Marianne first met. Not needing to be back at Ev's until it was time for her to close, Kitty and Jack then went to a bar for a drink before he dropped her off around 2 a.m. Finding the bar pretty empty, She told Dick Horan, who was on duty at the bar, that he could close up. I'm going home, she told him. Just after 3 a.m., she walked out of the bar into the chilly 34-degree weather to drive the 10 minutes home to Kew Gardens. Unknown to Kitty, as she left, a man observed her enter her red sports car and drive away down Jamaica Avenue. He was driving in the other direction, but made a U-turn to follow her. He followed her all the way to Austin Avenue and saw her park in the railroad station parking lot. The street was dark, quiet, and deserted. It was just what he'd hoped for. He parked on the street on the corner in front of the station. It was 3.19 a.m. As Kitty began to walk the 15 yards to the building, she must have heard or seen something behind her, because instead of heading towards the door that led to her second-story apartment, she instead walked to the front of the building. She may have wanted to go where there was more light, or perhaps she thought there would be people milling around at the end of the block, coming out of the pub. There often was people and noise at that end of the block, something the residents of Austin Street often complained about. There would sometimes be fights between patrons who probably had had too much to drink. But tonight the pub had closed early, around midnight, and the street and sidewalk were empty. The police call box was also at the far end of the block, Maybe Kitty thought of that as a safety measure in case someone really was following her. But we will never know, because Kitty only made it as far as the front of the bookstore, located in the middle of the building, before the man leaped at her from behind. He quickly plunged a knife into her back. She screamed and fell to the ground, where he plunged the knife in a second time. Kitty continued to scream, Oh my God, he's stabbing me, help me! A window across the street at the Mowbray building opened on one of the upper floors, and a man called out, Leave that girl alone! The attacker looked up, and frightened at being observed, ran off down the street. Kitty now pulled herself up off the ground and staggered off towards the way she had come. 
She may have been in shock and disoriented. Instead of walking on the lighted sidewalk towards the police call box, she headed to the other side and around the corner of the building. Perhaps she was trying to get to the back door that led to her apartment, but that was clear on the other side of the building at the side furthest from her. She may have realized that she couldn't make it that far. Her lung had been nicked by the knife, and it was becoming harder to breathe, so she tried the door to the first stairwell at the back of the building. It opened, and she made it inside, falling onto the floor at the foot of the stairs. She called to the upstairs tenant, Carl Ross, but she couldn't yell as loudly as she had before. Some of the other neighbors had heard a commotion on the street. Some thought it was a couple having a spat, as was sometimes heard after the bar closed for the night and the drunken patrons spilled onto the street. A couple of people even saw the man standing over the woman on the street, but once he left and she walked around the corner of the building out of sight, they figured it must be over and went back to bed. But it was far from over. The man had retreated back to his car a half a block away, where he watched Kitty from the shadows. He saw her get up, but didn't see which way she had gone. He waited a few minutes, and when it looked like no one was coming to her aid, he changed from the beanie cap he'd been wearing into a fedora hat with a feather. He figured this might disguise him if anyone had seen him before and called police. Now he left his car searching for Kitty. He first tried the door to the lobby of the train station. It was locked and empty. He then moved towards the building and saw the back doors. Opening the first door, he saw her lying at the foot of the stairs in the small entryway. Seeing the man over her, Kitty screamed. He began stabbing her repeatedly. When she could no longer struggle, he cut her clothes off her and attempted to rape her. He was unable to complete the act, but eventually was able to ejaculate on top of her. The attacker heard the door at the top of the stairs open and looked up and directly into the face of Carl Ross. The door quickly closed. The attacker soon left, disappearing into the night. It was 3.52 a.m. 33 minutes had passed since Kitty was first attacked. Carl Ross had first heard the screams at the front of the building. One of his apartment windows looked out onto the street, directly above the location of the first attack on Kitty. He heard cries from the street. He didn't investigate, and when the noises stopped, he relaxed. He'd been awake, drinking by himself into the small hours of the morning, and was now more than a little drunk. A few minutes later, he heard noises more clearly now, but now they were coming from the back of the building. He heard wailing and muffled cries that went on for minutes. He wasn't sure what he should do, but finally, curious, he cracked open his door and looked directly into the eyes of the attacker. He recognized his neighbor Kitty bleeding on the ground and saw her being stabbed. Drunk and terrified and not knowing what to do, he called a friend and told her that someone was attacking Kitty on the stairs. Don't get involved, she advised him. Afraid because the attacker had seen him, he then called his neighbor Carol Tarantino. I should call the police, he willed to her, but said he was afraid. She said he could call from her house. Afraid to go out the front door and run into the man who'd attacked Kitty, he crawled out of his window and in through his neighbor's window. Meanwhile, Carol had called another neighbor, Greta Schwartz, telling her what Carl had said. Greta knew Sophie, Kitty's neighbor, and called her next. Upon hearing that Kitty had been attacked and was bleeding downstairs, Sophie ran out her door and to Kitty. Kitty was bleeding. Her clothes had been cut off and she was barely moving. When Sophie kneeled over her, Kitty began to panic, flailing her arms about as if she were still fighting off her attacker. Sophie spoke softly to her to calm her and held her in her arms. Call the police, Sophie screamed up to Carl. He finally did. 
It was 3.55 a.m. The police arrived two minutes after the call. Kitty was rushed to Queen's General Hospital, but she didn't make it, dying in the ambulance before they could arrive. She'd been stabbed 13 times and had bled profusely. The leather gloves she was wearing were cut to ribbons as she tried to shield herself from the attacker's knife. She ultimately died from punctured lungs. She'd been unable to draw breath and had suffocated. Soon after the ambulance left with Kitty, Marianne awoke from a pounding on her door. It was the police. Kitty had been attacked, they said, stabbed. She'd lost a lot of blood and was on her way to emergency, but it didn't look good. Before Marianne could even leave the apartment, the officer received a call on his radio. Kitty had died on the way to the hospital. Marianne was numb with shock. Carl Ross arrived at Marianne's with a bottle of vodka. He poured them both a glass. Soon detectives arrived to question Marianne about what she may have heard or seen. Marianne hadn't heard anything from the time she fell asleep at 11.30 p.m. that evening until the police pounded on her door at 4 a.m. While they were trying to get information from Marianne, the police had to contend with Carl Ross, who was very drunk and acting obnoxious. He kept interrupting their conversation with Marianne. Finally, one detective had enough and asked Carl to return to his own apartment. If Marianne wants me to stay, Ross retorted, I can stay. The detective was now at his limit. He pulled Ross, a small, fragile-looking man, out of his chair, led him to the door, and pushed him out towards the stairs. A moment later, the detective heard a crash and looked downstairs. Ross had kicked a hole in the downstairs door. He was then hauled off to police headquarters and booked for disorderly conduct. Ross never shared with Marianne that he had seen her lover being stabbed and had waited several minutes before calling anyone for help. Detectives canvassed the neighborhood to see what anyone had seen or heard. They soon discovered that many neighbors had heard a woman scream, heard her say help, and some had seen the woman, the man, or both between 3.15 and 3.20 that morning. After taking several statements, the police put together a rough sketch of the details. Between 3.15 and 3.20 a.m., the first screams were heard. A couple of the neighbors heard a man yell, leave that woman alone, and then it went quiet. Most then went back to bed. A few stayed up to look out the window. Some saw a man walking away. He was described as either a swarthy white man, a light-skinned black man, and one person even said it might be a woman. He was slender and walked away calmly. He drove away in a white compact car. He was first seen wearing a beanie cap and then a fedora. While questioning all the witnesses, they asked, why hadn't anyone intervened? Various answers were given from, I thought it was just a lover's quarrel, to the most damning, I didn't want to get involved which they wrote in their report. Marianne was brought to the hospital morgue to identify Kitty. They pulled back the sheet to reveal her face so Marianne could make a positive ID. Afterwards, she sat on a bench in the hallway outside of the morgue. When the police asked if they could drive her home, she said in a daze, no, I want to wait for her. When they looked at her quizzically, she explained, I mean, I don't want to leave her alone. In a fog, she left the hospital. She spent the rest of the weekend drinking and sleeping with one of Kitty's shirts. She would sleep with it for a long time to come. Kitty's family was in shock and deeply distraught. They held a funeral mass for their daughter before burying her in Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut. Marianne attended the funeral. After her burial, Kitty's family never saw or spoke to Marianne again. 
When her siblings saw that the gruesome details of Kitty's murder were being reported in the newspapers, they threw them away before their mother could see them. She couldn't take it, Kitty's brother Vincent Jr. would say. It was destroying her. The youngest child, Frank, was sent to live with neighbors for a time. A year after Kitty's murder, her mother suffered a stroke. They stayed out of the limelight, not wanting to hear any details. They stopped speaking about Kitty at all. It was too painful. Detectives retraced Kitty's steps the night before her murder and interviewed Jack Timmons, who she'd had dinner with that last evening. They asked what he had done after dropping Kitty back at Ev's bar at 2 a.m. He said he'd gone out on a date with another woman and was out with her until 4 a.m. The detectives raised an eyebrow at this detail. Two dates in one night? Who was this guy and what was his deal? He must be lying, they told him. Why would he be dating two women on the same night? Kitty was just a friend, he told them. Sure, pal, they said. You don't understand, Jack explained. Kitty doesn't like men. She likes women. Hearing this information, they then went back to re-interview Marianne. First, they tried to get her to admit she was a lesbian by asking her leading questions like, why are two women sharing only one room and one bed? She said that was all they could afford. They continued to grill her for hours about her relationship. She didn't want to tell them that her and Kitty were lovers. She felt it was none of their business. Plus, she was afraid they might arrest her or worse. Cops weren't known to take kindly to homosexuals in the early 1960s. But after six hours of interrogation, Marianne admitted that she and Kitty were lesbians. She always regretted this, she'd say later, because they had no right to know. The police were finally convinced that Marianne was not involved in the murder. Now they had no suspects, no murder weapons, and no leads. That is, until five days later when a man was seen leaving a home with a television set, and it would soon be discovered that the burglar was also a rapist and a murderer. On March 18th, in a middle-class neighborhood of Corona, Queens, a local resident named Raul Cleary was outside in front of his home when he saw a thin, light-skinned black man carrying a television set out of a neighbor's house and place it in his car, a white Corvair. He called over to him. What are you doing in the banister's house? The man calmly answered, It's okay, I'm helping them move. He then continued on back into the banister's home, whistling as he walked away. Cleary asked another neighbor, Are the banisters moving? Absolutely not, he answered. The friend then went in to call the police. Watching the banister's house and seeing no signs of the intruder emerging, Cleary then went to the white Corvair, opened the hood, and pulled off the distributor cap so he wouldn't be able to start it when he returned. He watched from his window, saw the man emerge again, get in his car, and when it wouldn't start, get out and calmly walk away. He didn't even run when patrolmen who were responding to the call pulled up alongside him and got out to question him. They frisked him, finding a screwdriver in his pocket. They returned him to his car and searched it. Along with the stolen television, they found another TV set, some small appliances, and a collection of pornographic pictures and magazines. He was arrested and taken into the police station. At the station, questioned by detectives, he told them that his name was Winston Mosley from South Ozone Park, Queens. He was married, owned a home, and had a steady job and no prior arrests. Detective John Tartaglia was a 13-year veteran and felt something was off about this man. Why would a man with a good job, his own home, and a decent income be burglarizing homes in broad daylight. And since he had no record and didn't seem to be a seasoned criminal, why was he so calm? 
He didn't seem nervous in any way and easily admitted to the burglary. What's your story, Tartaglia asked him. Mosley told him that his father owned a TV repair shop and sometimes he'd steal television sets or other electronics to give him for the business. So how many burglaries have you done, the detective asked. About 30 or 40, Mosley answered, again with no trace of emotion. When asked, Mosley began to give all the details. Most of his crimes took place in and around Queens. Tartaglia then noticed that the description of his car possibly matched the car in the Kitty Genovese murder. Tartaglia called in homicide detective Sangin Carroll. After a few minutes of questioning him about his whereabouts on the night Kitty was killed, Detective Carroll reached for Mosley's hands, holding them up to the light. There were small scabs on his fingers. Mosley explained this by saying he'd scratched them working around the house. No, the detective said, you got those cuts from Kitty Genovese when you were putting the knife in. Mosley stayed silent for a moment. Then he said, okay, I killed her. Winston Mosley was 28 years old. He worked at a business machine company, Raygram, in Mount Vernon, just north of the Bronx. He had a job punching data control cards, making $4,500 per year, a salary equivalent to about $34,000 in today's dollars. He was married to Betty, who was a registered nurse and worked nights. Between their two salaries, they were able to purchase their four-bedroom house for $16,000 in South Ozone Park, Queens. They had one child, a toddler named Mark, and were raising another baby boy, Carrie, whose mother was a teenage cousin of Winston's. Winston was the only child of Franny and Alfonso Mosley and grew up in Harlem, New York. When Winston was nine, Franny told her son that she had to have an operation. She had a tumor in her stomach. Franny, being tired of her husband and apparently of being a mother, never came home after she was released from the hospital, abandoning her marriage and her son. His father, unable or unwilling to raise the boy alone, sent him to live with his maternal grandmother on a Michigan farm. While living on a farm was a culture shock for the boy who grew up in the big city, Winston seemed to enjoy his solitude, mostly keeping to himself. He enjoyed animals and insects to people. He was fascinated by ants and seemed to know everything about them. He was very bright. Later, he would be tested and his IQ recorded at 135. About a year later, Alfonso moved to Detroit and sent for his son. It was then when Winston was 10 years old that his father told him that his mother Franny had cheated on him, and in fact, Winston was not his biological son. Adulterous women would become a theme in Winston's life. At the age of 16, he lost his virginity to his much older married aunt. The affair lasted two years. He met a girl named Pauline when he was 19, and they married two years later. Winston found out that Pauline was cheating on him and threatened to shoot her boyfriend. But Pauline took the gun away and threatened to turn it on him. He shrugged. Shoot me, he said, emotionless. I don't care. She didn't. He filed for divorce. Alfonso had moved to Queens and opened a TV repair shop. Winston followed him to Queens. He soon was hired at Ray Graham. He met Betty Grant, a nursing student, and they married in 1961. Winston was a good provider and a caring husband to Betty. Her only complaint was that sometimes he seemed to retreat into himself and would stay silent, staring into space as if no one else was around. When asked, he'd say he was just thinking. At other times, he would become moody and distant and would leave the house and be gone for hours, without Betty knowing where he'd gone. Sometimes he would sit at a bar nursing a beer or two, and sometimes he would just drive around aimlessly in his little white Corvair. 
Betty would report that they had a good marriage and a normal sex life at first, but beginning in the winter of 1963, Winston became impotent. She explained it away. They were both working hard. He worked days at Raygram. She worked the hospital night shift, and they were raising two small children. Winston's mother, Franny, was now back in the picture and living with Winston and his family as well. They were both exhausted, she told herself. It was perfectly normal. He seemed to suffer from insomnia now. Betty would wake up in the early morning hours on the days she was off, and Winston would be gone, or he'd be tinkering with appliances. Sometimes there would be a strange television set or toaster in the house. Winston said he'd found the broken appliance and was going to give it to Daddy for his shop. But on nights Betty was away at work, Winston would tuck his children into bed and head out, driving around neighborhoods looking for homes to burgle. On the night of Thursday, March 12, 1963, with Betty gone to work, Mosley tucked his kids in for the night. At about 1.30 a.m., he armed himself with a serrated hunting knife and got into his Corvair. He drove through Jamaica, Queens, and in nearby neighborhoods. He was on a hunting expedition. At 3 a.m., he found himself in Hollis, where he saw the pretty, dark-haired barmaid get into a little red Fiat. Calmly and in detail, Winston Mosley told detectives about the events that unfolded that cold Thursday night. He followed the girl to Kew Gardens. He jumped her from behind, he said, and stabbed her. He'd heard someone call out, leave that girl alone. He then retreated to his car, where he changed out of his beanie cap and into the fedora. He figured if people saw him before and came downstairs, he could walk away without being recognized as the attacker. Why didn't you leave after you were spotted? Why did you come back to her, they asked. He hadn't finished what he came there for, he explained. He had planned to rape her. After watching from his car for several minutes and seeing no one, he said he knew that nobody was going to come looking for him. He also told them that when he found Kitty in the stairwell after stabbing her, he was seen by the upstairs neighbor. Did you run away then, they asked. Not right away, he said. After he closed the door, I knew he wasn't going to do anything. He said he finished sexually assaulting Kitty, stole her wallet, took out the $49 cash that was in it, and threw the wallet away on his way to work. This was a detail that hadn't been revealed to anyone. Now they knew that this was Kitty's killer. Later, they'd have him point out the spot where he'd tossed the wallet away and would find it there. But Mosley wasn't done confessing yet. He also admitted to several other burglaries and rapes, and one more murder. Twelve days before Kitty's murder, Annie Mae Johnson, 24, was returning home from dropping her husband off at work. She lived just a few blocks away from Mosley in South Ozone Park. Mosley was out hunting that night. He parked behind her on the street as she was getting out of her car. He jumped at her, pressing a short-barreled twenty-two rifle into her stomach. Terrified, Annie Mae began to hand him her purse. He shot her in the stomach. As she fell, she held a hand up to him, as if trying to have him help her get up. He shot her three or four more times. He tried to drag her into her house, but couldn't manage it. Mosley was only five foot eight and 120 pounds. He then rolled her into the house to the middle of the living room. He undressed the dying woman and then raped her while the rest of the family slept upstairs. Afterwards, he found she was still breathing. Deciding to hide the evidence of his crime, he wadded up some newspapers and placed them around her. He then took a scarf off Annie Mae's neck and placed it between her legs. He then lit the items on fire, trying to burn her body. Then he left. 
The coroner who performed Annie May's autopsy reported that Annie May had been stabbed with an ice pick. You're lying, the detectives told Mosley. The coroner said that she was stabbed to death. He shrugged his shoulders nonchalantly. He was wrong. I shot her, he said. Annie May had been buried in South Carolina. Now her body was exhumed and x-rayed. Six twenty-two caliber shells were found in her stomach. The small size of the bullet hole, along with the condition of her burned body, caused the coroner to believe the wounds had come from an ice pick. Winston Mosley was charged with the murder of Kitty Genovese and additional burglary and rape charges. That would have been the end of the story in the murder of Kitty Genovese. They had the perpetrator, a confession, and evidence that tied him conclusively to the crime. That would have been the end of the story, except for a chance conversation over lunch by two powerful men in New York. Abe Rosenthal, the city editor of the New York Times, and police commissioner Michael Murphy. Ten days after Kitty's murder, Rosenthal and Murphy were having a casual lunch in New York. Mosley's confession had already made the papers, and the subject of the Genovese murder came up in conversation. Murphy commented on that Queen story and said he'd never seen a case with 38 witnesses where not one tried to help the victim. 38 witnesses? Rosenthal asked. Rosenthal was a newspaper man through and through and knew an intriguing story when he heard one. He decided to assign a reporter to dig up more details. Martin Gansberg was assigned to write the article. He spent three days interviewing Kew Gardens residents and cops. The story, taking up four columns, was printed on the front page of the New York Times on March 27th. For more than half an hour, it read, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. The story would not only become big news in New York, but across the nation as well. People were shocked to find out how callous Americans, New Yorkers in particular, could be. What was the world coming to, people exclaimed. Television news programs aired features on the Kinney Genovese story and the inaction of the 38 witnesses. The Kew Gardens neighborhood was under siege from reporters who went on to portray the residents as unfeeling and uncaring monsters. Mike Wallace did a radio piece titled The Apathetic American. This apathy was blamed on any number of factors, from sex and violence on television, to the women's lib movement, to the decline in church attendance. Kitty Genovese's name was linked forevermore with the cold and personal nature of the big city and its residents. It called into question our very humanity as Americans, and it called for reforms to the way crimes were reported. As early as 1956, the National Association of Fire Chiefs had recommended a single number that callers could use when disaster struck. Canada had implemented the 999 emergency number, but found it too slow. Rotary telephones were still in use, and it took too long to dial. Other numbers were being tried in some large U.S. cities. Now, New York police and politicians were pushing for an emergency number. The Federal Communications Commission and Bell Systems agreed to team up to implement one number that all American citizens could dial in a hurry. In January 1968, Bell announced the launch of the 911 emergency number. The first 911 call was placed in Alabama that year. But other changes came about with the notoriety of the Kitty Genovese case. Sodium arc street lamps were placed on streets throughout New York's five boroughs as an added precaution against crime. Good Samaritan laws were put into place in 10 states that made it a crime to not come to the aid of another person if it is safe to do so. Three areas of psychology also grew out of the Genovese case. 
urban psychology, social psychology, and pro-social psychology. Many psychology students learn about the bystander effect, also called the Genovese syndrome. The bystander effect refers to the phenomenon where the more people that are present when a person is in peril, the less chance that person has of being helped. Someone else will help, people believe. Even if they do not witness anyone else coming to the person's aid, they will believe that if no one else is helping, maybe the person doesn't really need help. Growing up learning about the tragic death of Kitty Genovese and then learning about the bystander effect sometimes reverses this phenomenon. Some cite the actions by the passengers on Flight 93 on September 11, 2001, as evidence of a reverse bystander effect. At least four passengers who'd learned that the plane was being hijacked by terrorists and were intent on crashing the plane into the White House took it upon themselves to break into the cockpit, causing the plane to crash into a field. While it led to the deaths of all the passengers on board, it saved the lives of countless others. Chesley Sully Sullenberger was a middle school student when he first heard about Kitty Genovese. How could people be so cold, he asked himself. He vowed then that if he was ever in the situation where someone like Kitty needed his help, he would act. In 2009, as the pilot of a U.S. Airways flight that was in danger of crashing, he made a miracle landing on the Hudson River, saving the lives of all 155 people on board. The Kitty Genovese murder was a story that lived in infamy and led to a greater awareness of who we were as a society. Many were determined to be better neighbors who would get involved to help another. Good things came out of a tragic situation because of the story that reported how 38 witnesses stood by and watched a young woman's murder without anyone coming to her aid. But the reality is, that is not what happened at all. Most people who read the New York Times story pegged Kitty's neighbors as faceless urbanites, unfriendly and cold. The statement, I didn't want to get involved, was believed to be said by dozens of witnesses. In fact, only one person made that remark. The reality was Kew Gardens was a small, close-knit community. Not everyone was on a first-name basis, but it wasn't particularly urban, and Kew Gardens was a very safe neighborhood. Crimes were few and far between. There hadn't been a murder there for many years before 1963. Residents felt so safe they kept their doors unlocked. It was a far cry from the greedy urban jungle the media portrayed it to be. But not all was perfect. One big issue residents complained about was the lack of cooperation they got from police when there was a problem. One problem people had was the bar at the corner of Austin Street, Bailey's Pub. Sometimes late at night or early in the morning, loud drunks would cause a commotion. A couple of men might get into an argument and a fight would spill out onto the streets, or couples would argue loudly leaving the bar after closing time. Residents of the nearby buildings would call the police in hopes that they would come and at least shoot the drunks off the street. But many times, Kew Gardens residents would say when they called the police desk, they would hear, don't worry about it. If they called after 10 p.m., residents said the police would be downright hostile, and they might even be told to mind your own business. When the police would take their complaint, they would be asked identifying questions such as name, address, and phone number before they even asked about the details of the report. Many residents weren't comfortable answering so many questions about themselves in order to report a potential crime, so they would just opt out of making the phone call in the first place. Also, the way the calls had to be placed was a problem in of itself. In 1964, there was a different police number for every borough. 
The call would be routed to the borough's police communications desk, where a duty officer would ask for the caller's name and address, as well as a description of the emergency. The details would then be relayed to the nearest precinct house. The telephone switchboard operator at the precinct house could then dispatch a squad car or ignore it as a prank or a false alarm. Some calls were logged in and others were not. Some emergencies were responded to quickly and others could take hours for response or never be responded to at all. It was a frustrating process and some people would not even bother. The Times story said that there were 38 witnesses, a number that only vaguely matches the number of people who had witnessed anything that night. Curiously, the first paragraph in the article contained the claim of 38 witnesses, but the headline of the article reads, 37 who saw murder didn't call police. Either way, the number was an error. Police records from the interviews show that there were at least 49 people who had some information. It seems the number 38 came from combining some of the witnesses. A husband and wife, or a family who lived at one address, might be counted as one. In fact, most of the witnesses were not eyewitnesses, but ear witnesses. They had heard something. Some thought it was a woman's scream. Others, groggy with sleep, only described an unidentified noise of some type. Others described it as an argument or another kind of altercation. So there were far fewer than 38 who definitely knew that it was a violent attack on a woman. In fact, only two knew it. We'll discuss these two in a moment. The Times article also reported that three attacks took place over the 33 minutes between the time of the first scream and when the police were called. There were two attacks, not three. The first one was on the sidewalk in front of the apartment building and the second in the stairwell. The article also stated that nobody called until after Kitty was dead. In fact, there were several calls placed to the police that night during the attack. Michael Hoffman, who was 14 years old that night, vividly remembers his father Samuel calling the police. Michael, awakened by shouts below his bedroom window, looked out and saw a man bending over a woman. His dad came into his room and asked him what was happening. Michael said a man had beat up a lady and ran away. Samuel dialed zero for the operator and asked to be connected to the police. He was put on hold for three or four minutes and was then connected with the police dispatcher. He gave her the information about the incident and the location. He also gave his name, phone number, and address. By that time, Kitty had walked around the building and out of sight, and the street was quiet once again. Both Michael and his father went back to sleep. Michael recalls the next day, when the police were interviewing witnesses, his father had said if the police had come when he'd called, she'd probably still be alive. He got a dirty look from the officer for the comment. Another resident, Hattie Grund, also reported that she had called the police. She was told that they, quote, had already received a call. A flight attendant who was a native of France also saw the man running away from the woman. She'd been alerted and looked out of the window after she heard Robert Moser yell, leave that girl alone. She saw the man near the train station. She then picked up the phone to call. She said she was very scared, breathing rapidly, and when the phone was answered, she was unable to get out any words and hung up. The worst that those who were eyewitnesses thought had happened was that a woman had been beat up. No one knew that anything worse had happened, and once Kitty walked around the corner of the building and disappeared from view, and the man had walked away, they thought that any danger was now over. Only two people that night can be held responsible for inaction in what they knew to be a deadly attack upon Kitty. They had every opportunity to react in time to help her and possibly save her, and they did nothing. 
Joseph Fink was the night doorman at the Mowbray Apartments. He ran the elevator for residents and guests overnight. His post at the desk in the lobby of the apartment building was directly across the street from the site of the first attack. He was only 50 yards away. He was interviewed by prosecutors before the trial of Winston Mosley. He admitted that he had seen the attack. He saw Mosley stab Kitty with a large knife. He'd heard someone shout and saw the man leave. He saw Kitty stagger around the building. The prosecutors asked why he didn't do something to help. He said he thought of getting his bat. He even went downstairs where he kept it. There was a small room in the basement with a cot where he could rest on a break. There was also a telephone in the room where he could have safely called. But instead of doing anything, he decided to lay down and go to sleep. He'd had a long day, he said. Why get mixed up with the trouble outside? Prosecutors were disgusted with Fink. The second witness was Carl Ross, Kitty's neighbor, and the person whose stairwell was the site of the second attack. Carl had been wide awake, and investigators were sure he'd at least heard the attack on the street. It was directly below his window. They knew from Mosley's confession that Ross had seen him attacking and raping his neighbor. Instead of calling police, however, he called a friend who told him not to get involved. When the police interviewed him, he said the same thing. I didn't want to get involved. This would become the well-known phrase that was held up as the mantra of apathetic Americans. Carl Ross was a weak and scared man who should have done something to help someone who was not only his neighbor, but his friend. He knew Kitty well. He was a dog groomer who worked at a nearby pet store. Kitty had even purchased a puppy, a poodle, for Marianne from Ross. He spent time in Kitty and Marianne's apartment chatting or having a drink. Ross was also gay, but closeted. He was deathly afraid of being harassed or assaulted. He also knew that police were unfriendly at best to homosexuals and could be downright hostile. This may very well have been what caused him to freeze that night, taking several minutes and numerous calls to others before he finally called the police. Too late to save Kitty. Joseph Fink and Carl Ross were not called to testify in the trial of Winston Mosley. The prosecutors decided to omit them, fearing that once the jury heard from these two sickening people, as they called them, it would distract them from the real monster, the defendant Mosley. Sophie Farrar, Kitty's friend and across-the-hall neighbor, is the hero of this story. When she received the call from Greta Schwartz telling her that Kitty was being attacked on the stairs, she called out to wake her husband, but without waiting for him or anything else, she ran to aid her friend. She didn't know if the attacker was still there, nor did she know if he was armed and might shoot her as she came running up. Sophie was a petite woman, standing at only 4 foot 11 inches. She didn't think of herself at all, but only of her dear friend Kitty. The news report said that the phone call was made only after Kitty had died, but that was also wrong. Kitty was still alive when Sophie reached her, and after she had calmed her down, she held her and whispered to her over and over, It's okay. I'm here. Help is on the way. She rocked her back and forth in her arms, trying to soothe her, and conveyed to her that she was safe and not alone. Kitty's family never knew that she was there to comfort her in her last minutes. They lived for 50 years thinking she had died all alone and terrified. It was only in 2014 when Kitty's brother Bill got to speak with Sophie, still alive and clear-minded at age 84, that he found out his sister Kitty didn't die alone. It gave him great comfort. Winston Mosley went on trial for the murder of Kitty Genovese in June of 1964. 
The defense knew that the confession Mosley gave with all the details would be hard to counter. There was no way they could go for a not guilty verdict. They decided to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. They brought up his poor upbringing, being abandoned by his mother and his inconsistent life with his father. They also brought in reasons for the rage he exhibited against women, being cheated on by his first wife, his mother's infidelity, and the fact that he didn't know who his real biological father was. They also claimed he had been deeply affected by racism. Psychiatrists testified for both sides. The defense expert said he was legally insane, so couldn't be held responsible, while the prosecution's expert said the opposite, that Mosley was sane and should be held responsible. On June 11th, after just six hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death by electric chair. This should have been the end of Winston Mosley's story, but unfortunately it was not. First, because his sentence was commuted, and second, because he would be successful in an escape attempt. The judge at Mosley's trial did not allow for any psychiatric testimony during the penalty phase. The defense brought this up on appeal. In 1967, the Court of Appeals said that this testimony should have been allowed, so ruled that Mosley's sentence be commuted from death to life with the possibility of parole. He was then transferred from Sing Sing Prison to Attica State Prison, 350 miles away. In March of 1968, Mosley, complaining of pain, asked to see a doctor. The prison doctor found a metal tin, a small spam meat tin, lodged in his rectum. The unfortunate doctor tried to remove it, but could not. He sent him to Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo for the procedure. Six days later, two prison guards were sent to pick up Mosley for the return trip to Attica. He finished dressing just as the guards arrived to escort him to the vehicle. He bolted and ran out of the door, knocking one guard off of his feet. The guard was able to get off one warning shot outside the building, but Mosley continued running and made it for the tree line and then over the hospital's property fence. A manhunt began. 900 yards away from the hospital, Mosley hid out in the cellar of a home that had been empty for three years. Searching the home, he found a loaded revolver. He found some food and supplies and stayed at the home while searchers had moved further afield. Three days later, Mosley used the phone at the home to call a maid service. He asked them to send a maid to clean the house. A young woman employee arrived. Mosley threatened her with the gun and raped her. He then let her go. The woman, terrified, didn't call the police. She didn't trust the police and was afraid her attacker would find her and kill her. Instead, she called the elderly homeowner's daughter. She didn't want anyone else to go to the house and be attacked or killed by the man hiding there. Something funny is going on at the house, she told the daughter, without telling her about the man with the gun or the fact that she'd been raped. Don't let your mother go over there. The woman, now concerned, called the police and asked them to meet her there to check out the house. The officer who answered the call said that there was a shift change happening. Call back later, he told her. She didn't want to wait, so she and her husband took a trip out to the house. As soon as they arrived, they were met by Mosley, pointing the gun at them. He tied up the man and took his wife into another room where he raped her. He then left in their car. Mosley then broke into a nearby apartment where a woman and her baby were home. A friend of hers soon arrived. Now Mosley had three hostages. He told the friend to go and get him a car. He knew that the description of the couple's car had probably been broadcast by now. He told her if she didn't come back with the car or if she went to the police, he would kill her friend and the baby. 
The woman left and called the police. The FBI was called in. Without being seen, 200 police officers surrounded the apartment building. The friend then returned with a car, placing the keys on top of it before walking away to safety. Mosley, sensing something was up, did not come out. A FBI special agent was then called in. He called out to Mosley, letting him know he was surrounded and to come out. Eventually, the agent got Mosley's permission to come in and talk to him. As he was talking with him, other officers helped the woman and the baby escape out of a back window. Now without hostages and fearing for his life, Mosley finally surrendered. Mosley pled guilty to escape and kidnapping and received two additional 15-year sentences to be served concurrently with his original murder sentence. In 1971, the biggest prison riot in U.S. history took place at Attica State Prison. 29 prisoners were killed. Mosley now decided to straighten up and fly right. He really wanted to get out of prison. He began taking college courses, earning a sociology degree. He was the first convicted murderer in New York State to receive a college degree. Mosley was eligible for parole for the first time in 1984. After that, if denied, he would continue to appear before the parole board every two years. He started trying to work on ways that he might be granted parole. In 1979, he tried to give an excuse for Kitty's murder. He now claimed that he had accidentally cut her off in traffic, at which time she had shouted a racial epithet at him. He snapped, he said, and that's why he had killed her. Another time, he claimed that he had not killed her, but was merely the getaway driver. He claimed another man had killed her in retaliation for unpaid gambling debts. He later would also say that it was the violence between his mother and father that caused him to kill. As for the rapes he had committed during his escape, well, yes, he would admit he did rape the women, but he hadn't killed them, so that showed that he was a reformed criminal, he said. The parole board was not swayed by Mosley's assurances that he was a remorseful, changed man. He was denied parole 18 times between 1984 and 2015, which was his last hearing. Mosley died in prison at the age of 81 on March 28, 2016. Kitty's family and friends lived with the after-effects of her brutal murder for the rest of their lives. They also were constantly reminded of it by all the media attention around the case. Kitty's siblings were worried about their parents and kept all information about the case away from them, especially Kitty's mother, Rachel. Our mother couldn't handle it, they repeatedly said. Rachel suffered a stroke a year after Kitty's death. She recovered and lived until the age of 93. Upon her death, her children found a box that she had kept hidden with all the newspaper clippings about Kitty. The family didn't attend the trial. They couldn't bear to hear the details of the crime. They also later reported that they stopped bringing Kitty up altogether for a very long time. To speak of Kitty's life, they said, was to remember her death, and they could not bear it. Kitty's younger brother, Bill, who was especially close to her, was devastated by the loss of his beloved big sister. He was 16 years old when she died. Two years later, he joined the Marines and was sent to Vietnam. On March 13, 1967, three years to the day Kitty died, Bill stepped on a landmine and as a result, he lost both legs. Bill believes that because what he thought he knew about Kitty's death, that no one was there to help her and that she died alone, he would take risks. I couldn't let anything go without trying to act, Bill said. He also couldn't let go of his sister Kitty. Forty years after her death, he set out to find the truth about her life and her death. 
He, along with documentary filmmaker James Solomon, set out to get the story right. He traveled to Kew Gardens and beyond to track down as many surviving witnesses as possible. The film titled The Witness is heartbreaking and poignant. It answers some questions and provides some comfort to the family. His research helped him to track down Sophie, Kitty's good friend, who went to her aid and comforted her in her final moments. He was also able to speak with Marianne Zolanko. The family never saw Marianne again after Kitty's funeral. Marianne had been through hell, first losing Kitty and then being hounded by reporters. She moved away from Kew Gardens to Brooklyn, where she attended night school, earning first a bachelor's degree in social work and then a master's degree. She now lives in Vermont. She is still haunted by the events of that night. I just think that I was so close and I didn't know what was happening. I could have saved her, she says. The documentary The Witness has been met by critical acclaim. It serves as a love story to Kitty Genovese by her brother Bill, and it also serves to shine a light on the beautiful person Kitty was, giving us a glimpse into her life and not just the last 33 minutes that led to her death. That concludes this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter and Instagram at Upon a Crime. Until next time, be good to one another.